Well, good morning. Well, today we are finishing the Apostles' Creed, but next week we're still going to be looking at a key doctrine of the church, the Trinity. But today we land at the last two lines and they end in great triumphant hope. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, while many different religions, they try to aim at some sort of life beyond this one, it is interesting to note that Christianity, in Christianity, the material, the physical things of this world are quite important. I'm not sure if you noticed, but the whole creed affirms the value of this world. God is the maker of heaven and earth. The Son entered this world through a virgin's womb, and he lived as a human here. He suffered and he died physically. The Holy Spirit is present and empowers the church, the body of believers, us, in this world. And then we get to the final victorious line about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is huge, for in this statement, we take on the whole issue of death. Death is something we perhaps don't think about unless maybe some famous royal dies. And then, even then, we might be thinking about them and their family and not so much about ourselves. But today, I want us to think about our end and about what is afterwards. For Christians have good answers about what happens after death based on good evidence. We have hope for life, for eternal life, that can never end or fade. And another thing we need to remember is that when we're talking about the resurrection of the body, we're talking about a real physical body that Christians will get that will last forever. Heaven is not this ethereal floating on clouds place. It's real and it's solid. And in this passage we're going to look at, it seems to be for the Christians, for those who are in Christ, for those who will follow Jesus, for those who will be made incorruptible. And so I should say that 1 Corinthians 15 is probably my most favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I remember when I was working at ANU, every fortnight I would meet with another fellow Christian after work and we would chat and spur each other on in the Christian faith. And the topic of doubt came up and asked, what do you do when you have doubts about the faith? Where do you go to? What do you think about? My friend, he was from Latin America. He's quite an emotional guy. And he says, he looks at the cross. For on the cross, he sees the love of God. He sees what God was willing to go through to sacrifice himself for him. And that brings him comfort. And that's okay, that's not a wrong answer, that's a, that's a good thing to think about. But he turns to me, we're just wired differently, and he said, where do I go to? And I said, the resurrection. 
I think the resurrection is an objectively true historical event that changes everything. Regardless of my feelings or my doubts, it has happened in the past and I can't change that. And this gives me hope. We live in the real world where Jesus walked out of the grave. I think the resurrection of Jesus is the nail that holds up the picture of Christianity. If you take out that nail, the whole thing comes crashing down. And that's what Paul says at the start of this chapter. If there was no resurrection, then preaching is useless. Your faith is in vain. Christians will be lying about God, would still be in our sins, and we as Christians who believe this stuff should be pitied by others. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is false and I don't want a part of it. But Jesus did rise from the dead. There is such a thing as the resurrection. Jesus is no longer dead, but alive. There's so much uh, evidence from eyewitnesses to deny this. This means we can flip the script. This means preaching isn't futile. Your faith is not in vain. We are telling the truth about God. Our sins have been forgiven, and we should have compassion on those who do not believe this message. Because Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, we can have confidence that we too will rise from the dead. Jesus is described as the first fruits. When Hannah and I got married, someone gave us a lemon tree for a wedding present. I planted this. For the first few years, I looked after it. We put the sugarcane mulch on, put the netting around to stop the frost. But after a few years, nothing happened. We didn't get a lemon tree, so I gave up. The lemon tree still continued to live and grow without my assistance. But in the nearly 10 years we were there, we didn't get a single lemon. We then bought another house in Canberra, and I didn't know until we bought the place that it also came with a lemon tree. And the first year, it didn't produce any fruit. But the next year, it started to bud. And I remember showing one of our parents, look, we now have a working, functional lemon tree. And it would have been ridiculous if one of my parents said, well, that's a nice lemon. I wonder what fruit will come next. Lemon trees only produce lemons. The next fruit after the first one will also be a lemon. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. So we too will follow in his steps afterwards. And so from verse 35, where our passage picks up, Paul shifts gears a little. After dealing with the fact that the resurrection of Jesus happened, he now turns to how the resurrection of Jesus is going to, how our resurrection will happen for us. And here it gets a bit tricky, right? Because we all know what happens to bodies when they die. They're not getting better. They're not going in that direction. And what about all those who are cremated or decapitated or eaten by animals? What about those ancient bodies whose bones are no more? It all doesn't sound very reasonable at all. 
A modern-day skeptic may think that the Christian hope is built on something like a B-grade zombie apocalypse. But Paul shows from the observable world around us that this is foolish talk. We need to take into account the creative power of God. Paul shows the answer lies in how God has arranged the natural order of things in the everyday events. You only have to consider the yearly harvest to recognize the creative power of God. Look at the seed. In order for it to become what it's meant to be, it has to be buried and die. And only after that does it get a new body. It becomes something more. If you've never seen a seed and a plant before, you will not get the connection because they're so different. But they are also similar. Everything the plant becomes is already inherent in the seed. The plant isn't a rejection of the seed, but the fullness of the seed. And so the Christian hope of the new body is like that. The resurrection isn't a reconstruction. God isn't going to somehow try and put all our pieces back together again like Humpty Dumpty. No, our bodies will die, and then we will rise again in a new body, one for the new creation, unless we're still alive when Jesus returns, and then in an instant, our bodies will change in the twinkling of an eye. And our current bodies are described as perishable. It's weak. It's natural. And I've learned this a few times in my life. Most recently, last year, I went to my parents' property to help. Uh, we put on all the headgear, the earmuffs. I was doing some chainsawing. I was standing on a box, and I was chainsawing a branch above my head, and that fell onto my big toe, smashed the nail, broke the bone. I had to go to hospital. I had to get put under because I was worried about infection of the bone because of what the nail had done to the bone. I couldn't drive for six weeks, and I couldn't run for about three months. And you may have experiences like this too. In the last two weeks, I've had three or four older people tell me, don't get any older. Our bodies don't do what they want to do. They get sick, they break, they get cancer, they go weak. But our resurrected bodies will not be like that. They will be imperishable and glorious. Our current bodies are like our first parent, Adam's, who was from the dust. But our new bodies will be in the form of our older brother, the man of heaven, we will bear Jesus' image in our new, never-ending bodies. It's like there's a dress code for the new creation. In order to be admitted, you must be imperishable. The new creation will never end, and so you must be fit for that as well. You too must have a never-ending body. Be immortal. That's what fairy tales are about, right? We read them as an escape because in the real world, we're always trying to avoid death. 
but it's okay. In 2013, Google said they're going to solve death for us. It's a little hard, so give them a little bit of time. As one children's author said, the company who has read all your emails hasn't read a story. They've just cast themselves as the villain. Anytime someone in a story grasps for immortality, it never works out well for them. It's foolishness. But death does that to smart people. And there's 16 people who are cryogenically frozen in the hope that they will come back someday. These smart people don't get it. If, if their plan works, at best, they're going to come back mortal, ready to die again. It's like defrosting a seed and not letting it grow into a plant. This is foolishness. But death does that to smart people. When Hannah and I lost our baby at 20 weeks, the nurse in the hospital, she told us that he had gone to be a star in the sky. Nobody believes that. A star is a massive ball of gas, millions of light years, burning at millions of degrees. No one believes babies turn into stars. The nurse didn't. I don't because I'm not five years old. <laughs> death is an enemy. And I know it's not popular to talk about death because there's Netflix to watch and gardening to do and never enough time to spend with small children with big eyes. But death and our own mortality is certain. Last week, my daughter wrote to the Queen. She's been writing to the Queen since she was five. In her letter last week, she said, It is truly amazing how long you have been Queen. I think you'll make it to 100, but you never know. Truer words have never been said. You just may never know. I went to bed on Thursday night reading on Twitter that the Queen was... Uh, sick. In the morning, she was dead. Death doesn't care about your social standings. It doesn't care about your wealth or your influence. Death comes to us all. If you are not prepared to die today, can I urge you to think long and hard on your eternity? You just never know. You could die before next Sunday. Our mortality is certain. What are you going to do? You can't beat death. But as Christians, we know a guy who did, and he gives us his victory. As Christians, we aren't strangers with death. Our God came down into the human predicament and experienced it firsthand and then rose again. In 2018, I went to a funeral for a close colleague of mine. She was my age. She went to bed one Friday night and didn't wake up. At the funeral, her sister gave one of the eulogies, and she was 38 weeks pregnant. And she spoke of plans that they had with her new baby when it was going to be born. And then in anger, she said, it's just not fair. 
And she is right. Death is not fair. No matter what David Attenborough or the Lion King told you about the circle of life, death is unnatural. We were not made for death. It is only because we share in the image of Adam that we die. But there will come a day when we will share in the image of Jesus. Death is not fair and something inside us should cry out saying that it is not right. And right now, today, we are not clothed in immortality. And death, the great enemy, is on the side, just sitting off the stage, ready to take us all. A few years back, I gave this hypothetical at youth group. Bear with me. I did steal it from another guy called Rory Shiner. Pretend you're an alien from the planet Neptune. You're researching if Earth is suitable for farming. You're doing a PhD in agriculture. And so you get sent to Earth to do some first-hand research. But due to the planet alignments and your research funding grant, you can only stay from April to August. And then you land in Australia, in Canberra. You spend some time looking around, examining plants, looking for fruit going to orchards, and then the mothership comes and takes you home. What do you think the alien's conclusion is about Earth? She writes up the PhD and says, Earth is not suitable for growing fruit. In fact, the place is dying. Everything they saw on Earth was dying. Fruit was not growing. Leaves were changing color and falling down. Everything was getting colder and darker. And from their observations, this would be completely true. Everything they saw was going to death. And that is our world. Everything we see with our eyes tells us that death always wins and conquers everyone and everything. And we live like this, under death every day. We put seatbelts on in the car. We mourn when a species goes extinct. We see doctors when we're sick, and we hear about royalty who die. But the resurrection says, death doesn't win, God wins. You and I, we know that that alien should have stayed just a little bit longer. They should have stayed for spring, because that's when the first fruit comes and a massive harvest follows. As Christians, we need to have this mindset. The sun always rises after the darkness. Springtime always follows winter. The world says it's life now and death later. You have to grasp and experience and try because it's death later. We have phrases like, you only live once. There's the fear of missing out. You have to experiment now and don't worry about the cost. You need to write your bucket list because when you're dead, you can't do anything afterwards. But this passage says no. There is death now and life after. The great final enemy of death will be killed. Death will die and we will rise again. And when we put on the imperishable, then we can taunt death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
God gives us the victory that Jesus achieves. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and death, and we share in that victory. On that day, death will not get a resurrection. We will. Death is now on the losing side. Death tried to swallow Jesus, but got swallowed. Death is now foolish. He's now a subcontractor for Jesus doing resurrection agriculture. Think about your body as a seed. Death is just planting bodies in fertile soil. What's the worst thing you can do if you want to destroy a seed? You don't put it in the ground. Planting a seed will mean it becomes the fullness of what it's meant to be. We will turn into something that is imperishable and glorious, and our resurrected bodies will never end. Christians now may mourn, but we do not mourn as those without hope. Jesus felt the full sting of death and came out the other end. Jesus clothed himself in death so we can be clothed in life. Death may hurt, but it's not fatal. We have hope. It may be sprinter, or it may be winter, but spring is coming. With all this, as resurrected, hope-filled people, we have some living and laboring to do. This chapter ends with, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in all Christians. The same power that raised Jesus will also raise all those in Christ. This can give us purpose and drive for us to live in the present. If you've been thinking about serving in some way, or inviting that family over for a meal, or wondering how you can end sex trafficking or supporting mothers through difficult pregnancies, then you should do it. Because the resurrection tells us we can take risks for God. Because the resurrection proves that God is behind us, for us, and with us. As one author poetically said, our labor in the Lord in this life plant seeds that will sprout forth in the future world so that what work we do in this age will flower in the coming age of the new creation. Our work in the Lord is not in vain. I'll finish with this. A few years ago, I think it was about 2014, Two people I knew died within weeks of each other. One was this legal academic who had been at ANU since like the 1960s. He was this expert in the Australian constitution. He wrote the textbook that most universities across Australia were using. When he died, he got a big write-up in the Canberra Times. And I once converted him to use a PC instead of a Mac which hardly seems important right now. Another guy I knew died just after this academic. He was given two years to live, but he didn't make half that. During this time, his body deteriorated and he lost the ability to walk. 
He was a Christian. He was in my life group. And in this time, we received a few emails. He was a guy who knew how to die well. A month before he died, he said in an email, at the base of God's promises to his people is God himself. This gives us the courage and sense of purpose in using the gifts God has given us in building up his church and the opportunity in extending his church on earth until he returns. He got it. He said God himself is at the base of everything. And because of this, we can use our gifts in growing the church. When he died, he was not given a write-up in the paper. But I do know that his name was in the only book that mattered, the book of life. And I have rock-solid confidence that on the last day, he and I will rise in glorious bodies and walk. Can you say amen to that? Our creed ends with the word amen. Can you say it? Do you agree? Amen. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the certain hope we have in our victory, which we have received because of what Jesus, the first fruit, has done for us. May we now live our lives in confidence, seeking to encourage, edify, and evangelize those around us to build up your church, to make your name great as we await the new creation with our new bodies where we will be with you forever. Amen.